0: that everybody really cleaned up real good for Easter today. (laughs) Even me, you you look good. And Fred, you look good in a tie. I know that's not the only time you wear one, but I just want to let you know you look good. You look good in a tie. Amen. Amen. It's good to see some faces I haven't seen for a while, and it's just so good to see you. And uh, here we are, uh, Easter morning. This uh, This is a real special Easter for me because um, because this is the last time I'm ever going to share with you an Easter message, not that I will never share an Easter message again here, possibly after today I will get the gong, but no, I'm just teasing you, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, as, as the lead pastor of this church, as you know, we're in a transition that's going to take place the last weekend of August, and everyone needs to mark their calendars. And if you go on vacation, uh, if you're going to Hawaii, I'm just going to tell you right now, there's a hurricane coming that weekend. <laughs> you, go, you go into Arizona, it's going to be 155 degrees and you're going to fry. <laughs> and with uh, and, uh, the last weekend of August, we're going to have a great weekend honoring Pete and Tamar and setting <clears throat> the Schrader's in as the lead pastors of the church. and. And um, we're going to have a, a great 25-year anniversary, and they've got a, a night of honor for Sue and I, and uh, appreciate that. And it's going to be a great, great beginning of a new day for City Harvest Church. And I think things have gone extremely well, and uh, I think the traders and their team are doing a great job, and, and we're moving forward. In the the beginning years of of City Harvest Church, I I really used to dislike preaching on holidays. I I just felt like the church changed its personality. People didn't know how to act because we had visitors on Christmas, or can I raise my hand, or... You know, can I get a little charismatic, Pentecostal excited or, you know, can we act, can we act normal? And it just, people were just different. Easter, we say religious things like, he's risen. And then you say, yeah, and we don't talk like that. (laughs) I mean, that's not our normal vocabulary. And we just kind of were, we just kind of were just starchy and stiff. And I figured, you know, especially Easter time. You know, we celebrate every Sunday the fact that he rose again from the dead. That's, that's really why we we worship on Sundays. why we're not seventh-dayers. We're eighth-dayers, the day of new beginnings. He came out of that grave, and on the first day of the week when you gather, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, and you know, we had healings, and the deliverances and people getting saved and transformed and so the resurrection of the resurrected Jesus was doing all sorts of stuff all through the year and why did we need to stop like it was just a special day and, and of course I, I went through that but the last I got a little feedback here Matt a little bit I'm sorry about that and I hate to even name sound man because he's doing such a great job the only time you ever name them is when something's wrong <laughs> it's a tough job give, give Matt some gift certificates <laughs> talking out. All right? okay. But, uh, but I've I've grown in the last eight to ten years. I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but a deeper, deeper appreciation um, for yes, Christmas and the incarnation of Jesus, and of course Easter. Dealing with this week, we called the Holy Week, starting on Palm Sunday last Sunday. That was we had a guest speaker, Matt Molt here, did a fantastic job. But that really wasn't our emphasis. But Those eight days as he entered into the city of Jerusalem commemorating that and all that took place between that Sunday and the Sunday we're celebrating today called Easter began to deeply more and more appreciate with deep reflection the God becoming us and sacrificing his life and then demonstrating he was God rising from the dead and ascending to heaven and giving us his spirit and changing us and all that that means I began to get in deeper, deeper reflection every, every year, more and more. And so it's a great honor to be speaking here today. The last two weeks, knowing that I was going to be preaching, I've been really meditating on, on uh, much on the event that we call the Holy Week, the eight days of celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and all that took place in between that incident and all that Jesus taught in between that incident and what we what we deal with, the Good Friday, where he was crucified on the cross, and of course on Sunday, we don't know when he came out of the grave. You know, was it 12:01? You know, it was the first minute after midnight? I don't know, but he rises from the dead and he changes human history. It's amazing to me that a poor peasant, Jewish carpenter in the most disdained part of the Roman Empire, who really barely, you know, had, had enough money to have a shirt on his back. Okay, he only ministered within a small section of land. I don't know the span of the miles that he traveled by foot as he ministered those three and a half years, has transformed the world, shaking nations even today because of the reality not just of his historical existence, but his living existence in the earth today. It's it's, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. And and looking at that, I've come up with this devotional thought that I wanted to to share with you today. And that is this. behind, Behind the events of the Holy Week is the heart of the Son of God who loves us with such great fervency. And I want to just say this over and over again with such great fervency. I'm going to emphasize this today. He just doesn't love you. He loves you with great fervency that he gave his life for us. The depth of this love is what this week is all about. And understanding this love will transform the hardest of hearts. You know, one hard-hearted person wrote this after Jesus transformed him. He says, this life that I now that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. I refuse I refuse to reject the grace of God. Of course, that was the Apostle Paul, persecutor of the church turned apostle and writer of 14 letters of the New Testament, martyred in 64 AD. Another heart that had to be changed wrote this about Jesus. This is what love is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the means by which our sins are forgiven. Of course, this hard-hearted person was the Apostle John, known for his hatred against Samaritans and his temper. Jesus nicknamed him and his brother Sons of Thunder. That was not a compliment. They were quick to the trigger. They wanted to nuke Samaritans. They, they had issues. He becomes the apostle of love, writes the fourth gospel, and uh, <clears throat> three letters to the church in the book of Revelation. He's sentenced to slave labor in the mines of Patmos. Tradition says that he died in an old age after 98 AD in what is now Turkey. Another apostle whose heart needed to be changed wrote this about himself and, and to, to the church. I think it is only right for me to stir up your memory of these matters as long as I'm still alive. I know that I shall soon put off this mortal body as our Lord Jesus Christ plainly told me. I will do my best then to provide a way for you to remember these matters at all times after my death. We have not depended on man-made stories in making known to you the mighty coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. With our own eyes, we saw his greatness. We were there when he was given honor and glory by God the Father. When the voice came to him from the supreme glory, this is my own dear son with whom I'm well pleased. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this voice, this audible voice coming from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That was written by the Apostle Peter who Denied he knew Jesus three times when Jesus was arrested, yet he was restored to open the gospel to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to the Samaritans. Martyred by crucifixion in 64 AD, tradition says he refused to be crucified right side up. He didn't feel worthy. He asked to be crucified upside down. His martyrdom fulfilled the prophecy about his death that Jesus gave him after his resurrection. So it wasn't a apostle of Jesus, but someone who pointed to an event that we're going to talk about, wrote this in the Old Testament 480 years prior to Jesus entering the city. He said, rejoice, rejoice, people of Zion. Shout for joy, you people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He comes triumphant and victorious, but humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Lord says, I will remove the war chariots from Israel and take the horses from Jerusalem. The bows used in battle will be destroyed. Your king will make peace among the nations. And he will rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Of course, this was the prophet Zechariah, the prophet to the remnant of captives returning from Babylon. He prophesied Jesus Christ's entrance into Jerusalem 480 years before Jesus entered the city. One of these hearts that had to be changed by Jesus wrote this. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. There Jesus sent two of the disciples on ahead with these instructions. Go to the village there ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied up with her colt beside her. And people knew that Jesus had a pretty accurate prophetic gift. Now, some say, well, he could have prearranged it. That could have been my conjecture as he he was operating prophetically. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything, tell him the master needs them. And then he will let them go at once. This happened in order to make come true what the prophet had said, the prophet Zechariah. Tell the city of Zion, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble and rides on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did what Jesus had told them to do. They brought the donkey and the colt, threw their cloaks over them, and Jesus got on. A large crowd of people spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds walking in front of Jesus and those walking behind began to shout, praise to David's son. God bless him who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise be to God. Of course, the entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday fulfilled the words of the prophet Zechariah, according to Matthew, who was a distrusted agent of Rome. was known for his greed and his selfishness. Hated by his people, he became a radical follower of Jesus and the author of one of the four gospels. I want to talk to you very briefly here Nine things that Jesus, I guess that's not true. I shouldn't lie on Easter briefly. All right. Nine things that Jesus entry into Jerusalem means. What does this all mean from Sunday to Sunday? What does this all mean? Well, the first thing it means is this. He was coming humbly to his people. You know, a donkey is an animal that is, symbolizes humility and peace and you know, you can contrast it to that of a war horse. Jesus didn't come in on some big steed, you know, some handsome horse that's, you know, I don't know how many hands high and, you know, just muscular and valiant and parading with his reins. He, he came on a, a donkey. If you think of a donkey riding on donkeys, how many here have ever ridden on a donkey? Okay, Bill has. All right. All right. Uh, and we got one way in the back there. Congratulations! We got two donkey riders. And uh, <laughs> J.O. and our, our church planner in in Lane, he says, "All I am is a donkey that Jesus rides on. I'm a donkey that carries Jesus." It speaks of us of, of humility versus that which would be strength and, and, and something that would be like totally valiant. He was he was. Uh, he was coming not as a conqueror, but a submitted servant. You can contrast him to someone like Alexander the Great, who wouldn't have come in the town on a donkey and wouldn't have been yielded to the will of God. But in his own strength, he wanted to conquer the world and spread Greek culture throughout the known world of his time. Notice what Zechariah 9.10 said as we read it. The prophecy said that the chariots, the war horse, and the battle bow, all of those things those things were going to be destroyed by the king of kings. It wouldn't be a part of the new kingdom. Jesus was coming in complete surrender to his father to die for the sins of the world. So what we see is a humble man and submitted even to death. He was coming in love. The second thing he was coming in in love for his people. You know, um, we, we, we tend to look at God sometimes with a twisted view. We think that God is normally angry, normally wrathful, normally kind of ready to snuff out the human race. And so when we ask for forgiveness or if a sinner comes, or we, even as a believer, we get our act together and we turn back to Jesus, that he shows us mercy, but he really wanted to whack us. He shows us mercy. I'll show you mercy. I was ready to whack you, but I'll show you mercy. And kind of that's his nature. We somehow we, we get this twisted that he majors on wrath, and it's kind of and then anger and holiness, and it's all a part of his being. And this other part of him, he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he shows mercy, but he's kind of, his hand's kind of forced to show mercy. He shows grace, but his hand's kind of forced to show grace. All right, all right, all right, I'll, I'll show you forgiveness. <laughs> no, he, he comes. He comes in, in love for you and I. John 5 says this about Jesus. Excuse me, Romans 5 says this, but God has shown us how much he loves us. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. You know, sometimes as believers in Jesus, we think we're saved by grace. But after we give our life to Jesus, we're saved by our works. We forget we're still saved by grace. Well, you had wanted nothing, nothing to do with God. He died for you. He loved you. Now that you're trying to serve him and walk with him and stumbling a little bit and tripping a little bit over your spiritual shoelaces, you think, well, he doesn't, he doesn't love me as much as he did when I came to him at the beginning. Really? That's the lie from the pit of hell. Yeah. He loves you just as much. He came because he loved you and I. I'll never forget first time I heard the, 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 the hymn, the modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I remember, I was driving in, Wade Steele had made me a to C D. For me to listen to some songs he wanted to introduce to the church, and it was playing. I first time I heard it, and the verses are rich. And there was a verse in there that said, "This behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed." And this is what got me. I hear my mocking voice. Now we we talk about all that crowd that said crucify, but the hymn says. I hear my mocking voice. Well, what would I have done 2,000 years ago Of a part of that crowd? My mocking voice. Crucify. Call out among the scoffers. I just got my car into park barely and I had done this for a long time. I just began to cry with such a deep appreciation of how Jesus saved a wretch like me that I called out among the scoffers. That it was me, my voice was with them. That he still loved me and he did that for me. You know, and even now, in Jesus' high priest ministry, ministry representing us to the Father, even right now, he's pleading for you and he's pleading for me in our weakness. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 7 and, and uh, in, in verse 25, Now that he's raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the father, what's he doing up there? It's called in theology, his session. He's pleading on behalf of you. He's pleading on the behalf of me. It says, so he is able to save completely. Now this particular word in the, in the old King James English. Remember, some of you will remember it says, and he's able to save to the uttermost. Some said the guttermost but saved completely the word actually means to save entirely to save forever those who come to god through him because he always lives to intercede for them he pleaded for me in the beginning and he pleads for me now he pleaded for you in the beginning and i want to just encourage and comfort your hearts today he pleads for you now you know i've you may be here thinking I've messed up too much. You might be here saying, you know, I got too many scabs on my spiritual knees. I got, I got too many scars on my forehead falling forward and hitting the pavement of my walk with God. And I've, just, I've just messed up too much. He's just not as excited about me up there. He's not, just, he's not as consumed with me up there as he was at the beginning. No, he lives forever for you. To make sure that not only you start right but that you land right some of you have had a little bit of spiritual turbulence in your plane trip but the plane still is going to land he's pleading for you he's interceding for you you know we as i said we think that god's reluctant about giving us mercy somehow jesus you know, riding in on that donkey with his robe. Underneath that robe, he's got a big sword ready to whack your head off. He's coming in. Looks like he's a meek, meek gentle savior to submit to the Father for me, but really, he's got the dagger in there and he really just wants to let me have it. You know, Jesus said this. He said to his disciples, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Please, no, to give you the kingdom, or all the attributes of the kingdom. The attributes of Jesus being a healer, Jesus being a forgiver, of Jesus being a deliverer, of Jesus being a comforter, of Jesus being a priest to you, of Jesus showing you grace, undeserving favor and power that's beyond you and it's not has nothing to do with you. He just wants to show you generosity. He said, "Listen, don't fear." It's your father's pleasure to show you mercy. Father's pleasure to give you grace. Father's pleasure to give you mercy. You come to God and you say, Lord, forgive me for, you know, I've sinned. I mean, he's not there. Okay. All right. You got three more in your account. Oh, I will absolutely forgive you. I will absolutely show you mercy. I will absolutely. It's why I died. It's why I entered into Jerusalem. It's why I went to the cross. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Give me a hug. <laughs> you got to start seeing Jesus that way. Because your only hope moving forward, your only hope of getting free is Him. And who, guess who doesn't want you to connect with Him? The enemy. Guess how he does that? He makes you feel like God's holding you off with a straight arm, and he's not interested in you because he's lost his patience and virtue with you. I remember one time I was up in White Rock, Canada, in British Columbia, and I was at this church, I forget the name of the pastor, but it was an older gentleman who just had real seasoned in Christ, and he was talking to me about the long-suffering of God. He goes, one day I was in the church, and a, a man came in, And I said, can I help you? I just, yes, I'm looking for the pastor. Well, I'm the pastor of the church. How can I help you? He says, well, 45 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade. And I've decided I need to do something about that decision. Well, Jesus goes a long ways. Jesus has a whole bunch of grace, bunch of mercy bunch of forgiveness. He came into that city because he loves you and he loves me. Third thing, what this means to us, Jesus in that city, he was, he was coming to sacrifice his life for us to save us from our sins. You know, here's the, here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom truth. Jesus chose To submit to die for us. It wasn't something that was sprung on him by the Romans. It wasn't something that uh, the Jewish leaders tricked him and deceived him and caught him unaware. It wasn't something that the Father forced him to do. He said, I'm the good shepherd. And this is what he said about himself: no one takes my life away from me. No one takes my life away from me. I give it to, I give it up of my own free will. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it back. This is what my Father has commanded to me to do. In other words, I am in complete control. <laughs> You're not crucifying me. I'm submitting to a plan and laying my life down so you can fulfill Scripture. I am letting you do this. And when you do, guess what? I'm going to come to life again. Now, some ask, well, why did he have to die? Why, why die for our sins? Why couldn't he just forgive us? Well, first, sin has a price tag on it. Even in life, sin has a price tag on it. You know, we've all kind of got ourselves caught up in maybe a habitual sin. It starts off kind of pleasing. That's kind of that's nice. You know, if sin weren't fun and pleasant, we wouldn't be doing it. Sin is Fun. a while they kind of turn from delight and that's kind of pleasant to i want to do it more it kind of starts becoming a habit and then it starts becoming part of your very very nature and your personality and who you are you just don't lie you have become a liar you just don't steal you become a thief and it's part of who you are and it pays horrible consequences there's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is a way of death How many people have ever heard you got involved in a habit that that bit you and it became a habit of death? Okay, only a few of us. (laughs) It also separates us, the act of sin, from God. What heals it is the price tag of death. Romans 6.23 says, for the payoff of sin... Is death, but the gift of God, the grace of God, the the favor of God, the free favor of God, this eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the fourth thing this means of Jesus entering the city is he was coming to his temple to bring his presence. You know, the heart of God, the heart of God has always desired to be with his people. You go back, way back in the book of Genesis, they were building altars out of stones and offering animals. And it says, the Lord appeared, and the Lord appeared, and the Lord came. That was a, that was a temple. It's where God was hanging out, where they were offering prayers and sacrifices. He was showing up. And once Jewish history began and the exodus out of Egypt, they, they had tent temples. One was called the Tabernacle of Moses. And and after that tabernacle kind of got whisked away, when they didn't have a, 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 t- a temple and the Ark of the Covenant was, was stolen, David re- recovered it and set up like a circus tent by his palace. And there was a tent temple there. It was called the Tabernacle of David. And then they built the Temple of Solomon. And then that was destroyed. Then they built a new temple. And then they built a. They kept adding on to the new temple they built. And this is the temple that Jesus is coming to. But God always has had a place where he wanted to hang out with his people. God wants to hang out with you. God wants to dwell with you. When we come together on Sundays, he wants to show up. This is not just us trying to get to him. He's coming to us. He's with us. He's among us. He's working. He's changing us. That's what was coming. And Jesus was coming to be with his people in this entry into the city. You know, when he gets there, the first thing Matthew 21, 14 says he, we know the first thing he does is he cleanses the temple, kicks out the guys that made the temple just a place to make money. But the next thing in Matthew 21, 14, he starts healing the sick. He takes out the money changers. The first thing he does, he starts ministering to the broken and the poor. That's the nature of God. He starts ministering to them and he starts teaching. And then of course, Pharisees and Sadducees, they started taking Jesus on with questions and challenging him. And of course, he starts winning every debate and he stumps them and everything he says. And the people are just watching and it's like a a debate match and they're just cheering on Jesus and they just think this is great. And of course, the leadership did not think it was great. But he was also coming to reveal what he hated and what he loved. So one thing you'll notice as you study this particular week, there are parables that you read about, like the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the tenants who were who basically managing the vineyard, and he would send his servants, and they would beat the servants up and send more servants, beat them up, just like Israel persecuted the prophets. And then he says, I'll send my heir, my son. They'll truly respect them, and they killed the son. Let's kill the air so we can take control of this thing. These are all spoken in the temple during this time. The parable of the two sons. One son said, I'll do it. Sure, I want to obey you. Didn't do anything. The other son said, no, I won't. But had a change of heart and he became obedient. These are all spoken prophetically to the the people of the time, and to the leadership of the time. All these things are in this time. He's, he's teaching. He's coming to his temple, and he's teaching. But he's also revealing in this teaching what he hates, especially if you read Matthew 23. There are seven intense renouncements. This all took place right before they crucified him. Seven renouncements of what leadership was doing at his time that he was condemning. Here's some of the things. What did did he hate? Well, first thing that he he shared he hated, he hated religion that was about power. He said, you guys love the best seats at feasts. You guys love the best seats at synagogues. You guys love titles. You know, people ask me sometimes, Bob, what do we call you? you? You can call me whatever you want. Bob Stricker used to say, you know, my parents named me Bob because they couldn't spell yuck. But you, but you, uh, there was a posturing going on. There was a caste system developing. There was above, we're above you. He hated, he hated religion that created these caste systems. He said, call no one father for, for you are all brothers. No one's special. He said, you love to be greeted. Oh, rabbi, oh, rabbi, oh, rabbi. Now, Bob, you, they call, we call you Pastor Bob, and, and, and I've, I have no problem with that. Separates me from the other fifty Bobs around here. <laughs> Sometimes people who are very formal they get upset that some young leaders call me PB. Well, first, I love peanut butter. <laughs> but second, I think it's kind of endearing. You know, it's kind of like LT of the Navy SEALs. You know, it's just that's how I look at it. And, uh, but he didn't want caste systems. We don't have normal people and special people in the kingdom of God. Yeah. You're all special. You're all special. You know, if I, if I needed, and I just had done this here recently, if I needed help with somebody who's in a crisis and they need to know how to work with, you know, you know the social health services, I'm actually not going to go to a businessman to help on that. They don't know the first thing about DSHS, the ins and the outs and the programs and what you do. I got to find someone who's been through the system. I mean, everybody plays a role around here. Everybody plays a role. Everybody has value. He hated, he hated religion that focused on money. He said, woe to you, scribes. This is Matthew 23, 14. I'm reading out the King James, well, King James English on this, or the new King James English. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour, you devour widows' houses. In other words, their system did not favor the widows of Israel. They suffered much under their system of giving. You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. In verse 25 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He had such a nice, smooth matter in talking to them. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed. Greed and self-indulgence. God doesn't want greed in the house of God. You know, sometimes people challenge me and send me a text like, you allow these types of people in the church and these types of people in the church. We allow anybody who wants to seek after God. I hope you understand that. I mean, no shame. I, I woke up to one of those texts here not too long ago. I thought Jesus loved sinners. You know what we also allow in the church? We allow greedy people to come and find Jesus. (laughs) Well, greed's okay. Oh, is it? Doesn't sound like it's too okay here. He hates systems that this thing's about money. Now money's practical. It makes the church move forward. I understand that. But let you seek the kingdom and let money come. You don't seek money and think you're going to spread the kingdom of God. He hated religion that created trivial rules and burdens. He said in verse 4 of Matthew 23, this is all before he gets crucified. They tie up heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. No evaluation. You know, people are not really doing real well with that little Sabbath rule that they can only walk so many furlongs on Sabbath day. It's really kind of becoming inconvenient. Maybe we should lift that law off of them. That wasn't even in the conversation. Who cares about the needs of people? That rabbi over there, he's healing on the Sabbath day. Naughty, naughty Messiah. He hated, he hated, he hated religion. They covered up its disobedience with rituals. He said, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, what does that mean? Sounds kind of (laughs) cool. Well, a gnat was actually an unclean insect. A camel was an unclean animal. Now, there's a big difference in contrast between a gnat and a big camel, isn't there? But they would put cloth over the top of their cups, and they would drink the water with a cloth so that they wouldn't partake or swallow a nap. But man, they would embrace a camel. What Jesus was saying is you are majoring on something that absolutely doesn't matter. And you're swallowing something that really does matter. He hated, he hated religion with no love. You know, it's interesting that when the lawyer came to Jesus and he said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes the the Shema, which every dedicated, devoted Jew would quote every day. I think in the morning, the evening, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind and strength. Jesus did something that a lot of people don't catch. He added, and the second commandment is also true. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't part of the Shema. He said, Oh, by the way, by the way, it's not just, you know, Lord, you're one God and we worship you with all our heart and strength. It's also horizontal. You got to love your neighbor. You got to love people. I mean, spirituality isn't speaking in tongues over in the corner for 30 minutes. Spirituality may be going to somebody's aid and sitting with them as they are dying and sick or someone is in a crisis and they just need someone to be walk alongside of them. That's just as spiritual as fasting for a week. He hated religion that was deceived about itself. Woe to you teachers of the law, you hypocrites. This is nice. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean that well well, that didn't look good it looked good on the outside they painted those tombstones so people wouldn't step on dead bodies in the nighttime so they could see them but inside you're full of dead man bones you need a moral revival but what did he love what did he love well jesus loves broken people who see their need for mercy the wedding feast The first company didn't come. So he says, hey, go out and drag drag them all in. I don't care where they come from. Go to the highways and the byways and, you know, the dregs of society. If they want to come to the wedding, they can come to the wedding. Well, he loves broken people. He loves broken people who are impressed with others. It's Interesting, he says, I don't want you to be the greatest among you. I want you to be your servant. Be the servant of everybody. Be impressed with everybody else and you'll become great. Be impressed with yourself. This is not what this is all about. I hate that. He loves broken people who pursue God, not money. It's interesting. It's during this time. Jesus sits in the temple on what day of the week it is. I didn't check that out. And he watches a widow take her little coins and give everything that she has. He loves broken people who are not about money but are passionate about pursuing God. I've said this before to you, but if you have running water, you have food, shelter, and some form of transportation, you're like in the top 15% of the world's population. The poorest of us here are the richest among the nations of the earth. And I don't think sometimes we realize how much it affects us in our relationship with God. He loves, he loves broken people who seek to obey him. It's interesting, it says about the crowd, especially in the old King James Version, it says the poor received him gladly. They just loved his teaching. They were having a great time in the temple. He loves. He also loves people who lift burdens off of people because they know what it's like to live under burdens. He loves. I got my water mixed up there. He loves broken people who don't want to control, but serve. The greatest is to serve. He loves broken people who love sacrificially, sacrificially because they've been loved sacrificially. We love him because he first loved us. But why, what's the seventh reason he, this means him coming into the, into the city? Well, here it is. He was coming to provoke a fight in order to fulfill scripture. His entrance into the city provoked a fight. I am the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. The Jewish leaders knew what Zechariah was meant. They knew that this was a legitimate sign. They said, hey, hey, quiet these people down. He said, no, if I do, rocks will climb, start crying out. So it's legitimate. I am the fulfillment. Now, if that doesn't provoke a fight, what else will? He cleanses the temple because he thought he had authority. It was his temple. It's my temple, and I get to cleanse it. My temple, I'll get to heal in it. My temple, I'm going to teach in it. My te- what, what authority do you have to do this? We said, well, I'm going to answer it by asking you a question. John's baptism, was that of God or not? Well, well, well if we say yes, John condemned us, we're in trouble. We say no, the people will stone us because they love John. I don't, we don't know. Well, neither am I. I'm not going to tell you either. <laughs> his parables of the two sons, the tenants, and the wedding banquet—they all point to this: that God came to His people first, and when it was rejected, He went to sinners and Gentiles. He's making a loud statement in His. This is what He's, he's provoking a fight. I need you. It's almost like He's saying, "I need you to arrest me." I need you to beat me. I need you to try me in a false way. And I need you to hand me over to Rome to crucify me. Now start cooperating. (laughs) How mad do I got to get you? His seven denouncements. I mean, he had so many things he said to them in, 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 in Matthew 23. Listen to his political correct terminology. Hypocrites blind guides. This is out of one chapter. Hypocrites, blind guides, sons of hell, whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones, snakes, vipers, killers of prophets. Now he really, really made friends there. <laughs> he's picking a fight. He's making this thing come to a head to fulfill scripture. He's stumping, the, he's stumping them in debate. They can't. They can't they send, you know, a lawyer against them, and the Sadducees against them, and he keeps winning all these arguments and just stripping them of how unwise they are about the word of God. The eighth thing that this means is this: He was coming to demonstrate that He was God. Remember, no man takes my life; I lay it down and I take it back again. You can kill me, but I'll just come back to life. Romans 1 says this about Jesus. It says, The good news was promised long ago by God through His prophets as written in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As to His humanity, He was born a descendant of David because that was very important. That was part of the scriptural prophecies of the Old Testament. As to his divine holiness, he was shown with great power to be the son of God by being raised from the dead. People would recognize with me that Jesus wasn't normal. He just was, you know, yes, he was fully man, but you can take that too far. John says we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. You kill me, I come back alive. Not normal. Not a normal guy. Son of God. Lastly, He was coming to begin to usher in the kingdom of God. You know, the story doesn't end Jesus just rising out of the grave and that's it. You know, we just kind of do our Easter thing sometimes, you know, alive, alive, alive forevermore. We kind of sing our song and go eat our our banquet or brunch somewhere. But what he did in coming out of the grave, he ascended into the right hand of the father and he started what was called his session. Now he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour my spirit out among you. I'm going to empower you with my presence, my personal presence in your life. And you're going to go, starting in Jerusalem, you're going to branch out to Judea, area around Jerusalem, and you're going to not ignore those Samaritans anymore. You're not going to call out fire from heaven and nuke them. You're going to lead them to me, and I'm going to fill them with my spirit and my glory, which happened. And then I want you to kind of spread out through the whole Roman Empire by the power of my presence because i'm going to break the chariot i'm going to break the bow i'm going to do away with the strong horse like it says in zechariah 9:10 and i'm going to bring my peace to the nations and i'm going to do it by changing human hearts because i didn't come into this city on a war horse i came into this city on a donkey It's gonna take fully submitted people who submit to me as I submitted to the Father. And my kingdom will be spread throughout the earth. So on the road to Emmaus, he talks to two disciples that weren't the the 11. And he talks with them and they're they're all excited. He's asking them questions, playing along with them. And then of course he begins to tell them that all things were written in the prophets and the Psalms and the law were fulfilled in him. He breaks bread with them, and they recognize it was Jesus. And and so this is what it says. This is what is written. The Messiah must suffer, must rise from death three days later. And in his name, the message about repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and I myself will send upon you what my Father has promised, that you must wait in the city until the power from above comes down upon you. He came into that city to begin to usher in the kingdom of God. And that's why, whether you realize it or not, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. A lot of people don't know that. We're so used to us being the minority, and, oh, look at America, and... America is just one of how many nations around the world. The center of power of Christianity has skipped over America. Africa, Asia, South America, there's thousands of people getting saved. Miracles happening. You know, Smith Smith Wigglesworth, I can say his name, Wigglesworth, he said God will pass over a crowd of thousands to touch that person with faith. Just because you see in our own nation that people somehow struggle with faith and everything else, God's not wringing his hands, well, that now I can't move in the earth. He's, he's moving in the earth. Sometimes he just hops over us. But he's ushering in his kingdom. We can be a part of that today.